If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. I would interview scientists for my work and always ask them, what makes you feel hopeful? And one thing that was true was they always had lots of examples, but that wasn't what was being published in their papers. It, it was something they were noticing or talking about. So it led me to actively search for hopeful things. And by doing that, I was inundated by hopeful things. And then it became my quest to figure out how best to share those so that that doom and gloom narrative would have a counterpoint that should sit alongside it. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so as we enter the new year, we are kindly asking for your direct support, if you can, at patreon.com slash greendreamer, or through purchasing our fundraising planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. We are joined today by Dr. Ellen Kelsey, a scholar, author, and a passionate leader in the Hope and Environmental Solutions movement. She co-created Hashtag Ocean Optimism, a Twitter campaign to crowdsource marine conservation solutions, which has reached over 100 million shares. And she's also the author of the children's book, Alaska Goodbye, as well as Hope Matters, Why Changing the Way We Think is Critical for Solving the Environmental Crisis. We're so often thrust into the general doom and gloom of this field of sustainability and social justice that can make us feel helpless and want to tune out altogether. But while wishful thinking will obviously get us nowhere, it turns out that at a psychological level, hope plays a critical role in activating us and fueling this movement. So if you're ready to unpack this topic further, Green Dreamer, take a deep breath and let's dive in. I think I've always been a wanderer. I grew up in the middle of a city in Canada, and it, I was in actually kind of a newer subdivision, so it, there weren't large trees or anything like that. But behind the houses, there was a ravine that had a, a creek running through it. And as a very young child with a dog, I remember spending as much time as I could following that creek to see how far I could get, you know, just how far away I could get. And in the process of doing that, you know, I discovered lots about 
where the creek would run quickly or where there were willow trees that would hang down almost to the surface and, and those kind of cooler shadowy areas. Sometimes I would see muskrats or I might see snakes and it was thrilling to me to come upon anything of nature. And I would say that now as a woman who's almost 60, I still love to wander. You know, I've been lucky to travel to many parts of the world. I like to wander across ideas in different fields. I, I always want to know more about this incredible, uh, you know, some say there are 8.7 million other species on earth. And I just think that's a remarkably diverse, ever-changing, ever-growing world of life. And I, I just am insatiably hungry and interested in wandering amongst it and knowing more about it. Mm, very relatable for me. What stands out to me about your work is the optimism that weaves your areas of expertise together. So you talk about ocean optimism, earth optimism, conservation optimism, and so forth. What was the turning point for you that led you to take this approach of ensuring that your work brings hope for your students and audiences? So how did you come to realize the importance of optimism in this work? Yeah, I think because I'm I'm sort of very lucky in the sense that I write picture books for children and I work as an academic on research projects in universities and I do lots of public talks. And the result of that is I talk to lots of people in many different ages in lots of parts of the world. And I started to realize probably 15 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, that when I was talking to people about the environment, there was such a common and pervasive feeling of gloom and doom that that narrative just sort of hung over all of the conversations. And, and what I saw was that people who deeply love the planet and are really committed to environmental issues, you know, really care about things, were sort of suffering this overwhelming sense of fatalism that that all was for naught or it was completely wrecked or we're on a one-way trajectory downhill and the result of those kinds of feelings it, just to feel that on a personal basis talking to people who had family members who had were in deep despair or depressions or in some cases suicides of friends of mine who were scientists you know really profoundly felt feelings about the state of the planet and on the other side, I've, I've always been really interested in sort of communications theory and psychology and mindfulness more, you know, in more recent years, and recognizing that when we only tell the story of problems, we, we are not telling a full story. We're missing the whole half that talks about what, what positive outcomes are coming from all of this concern. And my nephew, as a young boy, once asked me, if everyone is doing all this stuff for conservation, is nothing changing? And that provocative question on top of recognizing the sorrow so many people were feeling really led me to actively search for, you know, what is changing? What is getting better? Where are solutions actively happening that are evidence-based? And by doing that, it, it led me to find many examples. I would, I would interview scientists for my work and always ask them, what makes you feel hopeful? And one thing that was true was they always had lots of examples, mm -hmm. but that wasn't what was being published in their papers. It, it was something they were noticing or talking about. So it led me to actively search for hopeful things. And by doing that, I was inundated by hopeful things. And then it became my quest to figure out how best to share those so that that doom and gloom narrative would have a counterpoint that should sit alongside it.
Right. And the question of what makes you most hopeful is one that I do ask all of my guests. So you'll be getting Mm -hmm. that from me later on. But this is interesting because having an element of hope and cautious optimism has generally been my personal approach to these discussions. Just having this idea that when things are all doom and gloom, it turns a certain segment of our society completely off from even engaging in these discussions. But also a few months ago, we had Margaret Solomon of the Climate Mobilization on the show. She's a psychologist And the point she was making is that fear is a powerful emotion that helps our psyche to understand that something is wrong and action needs to be taken. So it's a functional and protective emotion. And so her take was that this whole keep it positive, don't scare people off with the truth, this kind of positivity talk is not helpful. And maybe both are necessary, but how would you clarify the roles of fear versus hope in our activism? And how might each emotion shape our following actions differently? Yeah, it's such a good question. And of course, we're complex people who hold many emotions all at the same time. And there's a wonderful philosopher named Lisa Kratz who talks about outlaw emotions, you know, how we've been trained or taught maybe through societal norming, to not express the full range of feelings that we have, perhaps fear and dread and worry and hope all balled up together. And so I've been working with an international group of academics on putting together a toolkit around existential anxiety, a toolkit for climate justice educators of ways of creating safe spaces for people to talk about the range of feelings that they have. And I think it would be wrong-headed of us to imagine that all fear is right or all hope is right or do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. that I think what we're really talking about in common I would imagine is that emotions really matter to how we engage with things and emotions like anger for example have been shown to be very activating when we're angry about something or when we are hopeful about something it's hope is also an activating emotion i think the climate change marches that we saw in 2019 and the climate change actions that are continuing to happen even in the midst of the pandemic are a result of people's anger fear hope all balled together the sense of a collective purpose that is meaningful and so I think I'm not really interested in wishful thinking, which is what often people think of when they're talking about hope. I'm interested in evidence-based hope, you know, Mm -hmm. real things that are happening for the better that we need to amplify so that people can tailor them to their particular context and move behind them or push them forward. So, so I think, I think that's how I feel about that. It isn't an either or it's a really recognition, recognizing that, Unfortunately, we have such a strong bias towards doom and gloom that we need to be actively aware of the negative implications of that. So as you say, there is a big difference between unrealistic senses of hope that might just be wishful thinking versus hope that's actually rooted in reality. And if we're constantly learning about what's wrong with the world, then we should also be learning about the solutions actively being implemented and the progress that is being made in in this field. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I, I think one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that problem identification, we see the same thing in the whole psychology movement. For a long time, psychology was focused on what's, you know, looking at people who were perhaps suffering from problems and looking at what contributed to those problems. But in more recent decades, 
what we've seen is this shift towards looking at what what allows people to be healthy or to or to thrive even in difficult circumstances and to study where those strengths and resilience comes from. And I think both things are really necessary in psychology and really necessary in the environment. I would also say that we can do problem identification often as individuals. We probably all learned sometime in school how to do a SWOT analysis where you look more deeply at what's not working in a system, right? But in order to develop solutions, they almost always require collaborations and creativity across many people's strengths. And so I think part of our bias towards a problem identification is that it's easier to do that by ourselves, whereas to enact solutions or to find meaningful changes, we often need to do that collectively. And and a lot of our scientific research paradigms were set up around individual research criteria rather than collective cross-disciplinary approaches. And I think that's shifting, but I think that's part of the reason why we have such a problem identification lens. There's also this concept of negativity bias, which says that if there are 99 things going right and there's one thing going wrong, our brains will tend to fixate on what's going wrong just due to us being problem solvers and maybe wanting to protect our safety and our well-being. So how do you see that working in conjunction with trying to tell more real stories of hope, that even if we were to tell all these stories of hope, that we we might still fixate on the negative things and still feel a sense of despair about the plight of the world. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you raising that. And, And I think it's very likely that we'll still feel those feelings of despair because we're up against urgent and critical and globally skilled problems. And because we know that we are exposed to more media now than at any other time in our history, more bad news than any other time in our history, because almost all the news we hear about the environment is is in that problem identification framing. And we know from communication specialists who do research on this, that, you know, this 24-hour cycle of on our personal devices, our exposure to that negative news is so overwhelmingly present that it's we're, we're all at high risk for things that some people call headline stress disorder, for example, or compassion fatigue, or all kinds of things that come out of negative news being inundated by it. I think it's really helpful to be aware of things like negativity bias, or to be aware of how oriented our news is towards, you know, what proportion, what percentage of our news is in this problem identification frame. And in so doing, it allows us to be a little bit more analytical about what we're consuming. And I think I I guess I'm an educator at heart, the more we know about it's not just what we're hearing, it's the context in which we're hearing it and how much of it we're hearing and how often all of those sorts of things also reinforce that negativity bias. Mm. I think the other thing that I feel quite encouraged by is that we're also living in a time now of these incredibly large data sets that we didn't have even a few decades ago. And those large data sets can be very hope-inducing because they allow us to look at things in a much more quantifiable, evidence-based frame. And so we're able to say things like, we now know that more than half the population on Earth is 30 years of age or younger. And if we look across surveys and various research reports, the two driving concerns of people in that age group across hundreds of countries are climate change and social justice. And I think we don't have to look very far in the news to see that played out 
You know, those concerns are very present. And so when we know that, then that sort of capacity to see something on a big data level allows us to realize it's not just me alone who has this concern or is worried about this. I am part of a mass movement of people who are concerned about this. And that changes our feelings of empowerment and our feelings of agency. And I think that's a really important thing to be aware of. With the negative news cycle, which is especially present in this field of environmentalism and sustainability, you had previously talked about the connection between these negative emotions such as despair and consumerism, which is ironic, but really interesting. So can you expand upon what the research shows there for a listener? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing that if we live as as uh, many of us have over time in a consumer-based society where we part of our feeling of of self-worth is what we own and part of our ways of self-medicating when we're overwhelmed by something is going shopping then ironically even if we're really super concerned about climate change or overconsumption or those sorts of things when we feel powerless or that something is larger than ourselves and it's hopeless then ironically we sometimes turn to shopping as a way of of making ourselves feel feel more the term is terror management theory and the idea behind terror management theory is we we do these things to sort of hold on to our own sense of survivorship that that as long as we're consuming we're not dying <laughs> you know we're we're still there we're still present we're still us and so by feeding someone a steady diet of just how bad something is when they already know it's bad what you end up doing is triggering this kind of terror management theory response and ironically supporting shopping and overconsumption. So when we are trying to really hold on to and tell more stories of hope, some people might say that if people heard the positives of what is being done and achieved, won't they feel like everything is fine? And you know, there are people working on this. So therefore, I don't need to personally do anything and take action and change anything myself. Yeah, it's funny. That is that is the number one fear people have around speaking about solutions that are happening or around hope is that it will somehow make us complacent. But the psychological literature says quite a different thing. In fact, when we it's when we feel that things are hopeless that we're much more likely to become apathetic or cynical or fatalistic, disempowered, disengaged. We shut down, we tune out. And it's when we think that our actions are part of a bigger collective of actions, you know, that we see that there's something that we're doing can have a meaningful impact and is having a meaningful impact. We are much more likely to to stick with the hard work of making that thing happen. And and I I often find it ironic that we worry about this so much with the environment because we know this in other parts of our lives. We you probably at some point in your life, unfortunately, either had a teacher who was, you know, really determined to um, weed people out by difficult exams where you fell farther and farther behind or a boss who was always critical of what you were doing. And think about how motivated did you stay in those circumstances? Mm. It's rare the person who's highly motivated that way. And I certainly I'm really interested in sports psychology lately. And sports psychology is really moving in this realm of self-care and, you know, self-talk and thinking about compassionate ways and how we are 
self-kindness. These are all very important motivators of helping us do difficult things. And the same is true for the environment. So the worry that by talking about solutions or hope will make us complacent, it just doesn't bear out both in our lived experiences and in the research literature. Mm. I had studied positive and behavioral psychology before. So what I'd learned was that the more confident we feel in our abilities to actually get something done, the more likely we're actually to do those things. So it's kind of like helping us understand that we are able to achieve this and therefore it will be meaningful when I take action and work on this thing rather than feeling like there's no way, there's no way through. So why bother, you know? Exactly. That sense of self-efficacy, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I have the agency, I have the capacity to do something and that thing I'm doing can, can really make a difference. And it, it is really interesting, like media studies have been done on when people only hear bad news about the environment, they're deeply concerned, but they will report that they, they can't imagine doing anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas when they hear stories of big problems, but it includes actions that are being taken by others, they're much more likely to report that they can see themselves doing that and in fact feel motivated to do so. And to move on with environmental media, there's often this focus on victimhood. So we talk about how certain species are going extinct, how they're being harmed, or even as my journalist friend noted, when white or often Western journalists write about frontline communities dealing with the impacts of climate change today, the lens through which they view those communities is also through one of victimhood. And this is very common in media when journalists go into a frontline community as an outsider, but stay there just for a few days to extract a story and then leave, rather than taking months or years to really get to know what the so-called victims are doing to adapt, to hold their grounds, and to be resilient and resist. And you've also noted the lack of stories on resiliency in environmental media as well. So I'm wondering if you could share, what do we miss out on when all of these narratives center on victimhood rather than on adaptation and resilience? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. In fact, I was just looking at some work from 2019 that there, there was this idea that hope was a privilege and that it was only held by people who already had their other needs being met or, you know, so it's another way of sort of creating some elitism hierarchy, which contributes to this idea of victimization. But of course, that doesn't bear out. And in, in fact, this 2019 work I was looking at from Pew, which does a lot of these social surveys around people's engagement with environment is that, in in fact, African-American, Black, Latino involvement with climate change is higher than within white populations in the United States. So this diversification is really important to recognize and to 
and and that that switching of this the whole victimization narrative was also so strongly held within the development community for decades you know that one would come in to help bringing outside answers rather than recognizing the resilience and capacities of individuals and communities in the place in which they are living i think that victimization um, narrative is also heavily put on other species and that's a particular interest of mine so we know that with all of these other species on Earth, they, they are actively responding and changing and have resilience, and yet we almost never speak about that. So when we, when we talk about solutions, we often speak only about human actions. And just recently, there's been a lot of conversation around tree planting because trees are so important from a climate change perspective. And, and I'm very supportive of the idea of tree planting and engagement in the urban forestry and the regreening of the planet. And I've also been noticing work that's focusing on uh, natural forests. And these natural forest recoveries tend to be more resilient, faster recoveries. And, and the idea there is that the social networks between trees, you've, you and your listeners have probably heard about this a lot in the last few years, but you know that there are these connections that occur between roots and the microfungal communities that join roots of different trees and plants together, and that the capacity of the mother trees with large trees within these communities to actively move their energy to other members of that community, these are not passive victims, trees and uh, other kinds of plants and other kinds of animals. They are active agents on our planet. And I think that that's, that's a whole other part of victimization that we really need to challenge. Mm. Well, the research that you've looked at that I'm sure brings you optimism points to how we may be genetically programmed for the greater good. And to some people, this may be hard to believe given the collective negative impact of our human civilization on our planet, of which we're a part of, and also given the atrocities and violence that we've seen people commit throughout history and still to this day. But down to the biological and genetic level, what leads you and other researchers to believe that it's actually built into our DNA to act on behalf of our greater good? Yeah, this was interesting research that was done at the Mind-Body Lab in Stanford, and now by a researcher who's at the University of California in Los Angeles. And what they were looking at is that when we do something that feels good, you know, it might be getting a sauna or having a chocolate bar or something that's like a, a pleasure, we, we feel better, like it, it does make us feel better. But when we do something that feels good, like uh, taking a chocolate bar to a neighbor or, you know, feeding birds or participating in a beach cleanup. Not only does that feel good and we feel good about it, but we actually they actually have seen a response in our immune system. We have an improved immune response and it lowers our blood pressure. And so what they are taking from that is that because there's a biological response when we act on behalf of the greater good, that is different than the biological response when we only act on behalf of our own pleasure. They then say that that points to a genetic predisposition to acting on the greater good. This really reminds me of a conversation I had recently with Rutger Bregman back in episode 260. He wrote a book called Humankind to debunk the veneer theory, which states that humans are more inclined to be bad 
than good. And what he argues is that humans are more inclined to be good, but our our circumstances and external artificial environments that we might be placed in are what often can lead us to act out in harmful ways. And he also mentions, and we know this as well, that humans are social creatures and our survival has depended on relationships and therefore our pro-social behaviors for our greater communities. So this all aligns with what we just talked about. The question I do wonder about, though, is that everyone defines greater good to a different extent. So we do have people with narrower views of greater good, applying that only to maybe people that think and look like them. And on the opposite side of that, we have people that view our planet as one global community, really aligned with the vision of oneness with all species and all beings of this earth. So I wonder whether whether the health beneficial and therapeutic effects of doing something good for our planet is contingent upon people having the worldview that we are all one family and one community, rather than having maybe a human or white supremacist view with narrower concepts of greater good, if that makes any sense. So we may be we may be programmed to act on behalf of our greater good, but what if people's ideas of greater good doesn't extend to and include our whole planetary community? Oh, these are such wonderful, thought-provoking questions. I really appreciate them. It makes me think about this rising amount of research that shows the health and well-being benefits of time spent in nature. And that's really been gathering steam over the last few decades and has really been apparent during this time of COVID-19 that people have been around the world seeking out time in nature, that that has been an active movement. I just saw something that the Google hits for uh, searching for bird songs and tree identifications were up 300% or something wow. during this time. So these interesting ways in which people try to get at this. But I think that that whether one holds that worldview, you know, I, I really fit much more in the category that you talked about that, you know, I just really know that I'm breathing because of the kelp that are in the for, in the ocean near me, you know, I'm, I'm here because of other species, I, I'm only alive because of my incredible lucky connections to others. But I, I think that this innate pull towards nature, which is evidenced even in large, large cities, you know, we, we are intimately tied. And so whether we hold that worldview or not, this tendency of, of being called to this connection to nature, I think is very present. And I, I find it encouraging to see one of the responses to COVID-19 has been an escalation of interest. You know, most of us on earth live in cities and this really doubling down on the necessity of greening cities in ways that are socially just. And so MIT, for example, has these satellite images they use to look at where trees are distributed throughout a city, for example. And access to trees has been tied to higher health benefits. It's been tied to lower crime rates. And so in the same way that we've been talking about social determinants of health, right, that how healthy we are, of course, depends on how we look after ourselves, but it also depends on what access we have to good food and what access we have to health care and all of those other things. The same social determinants of, of health and well-being are determined by what access we have to nature. And I see that the, the same people who are interested in social justice are raising that as a very important concern. And I think it's been made much more obvious and stark by the inequities that have happened around COVID-19. 
And your overall message is, of course, that hope matters. What have you been working on personally to embody this message? And how far do you think it can take us? So if all of the media world were influenced to center their narratives on the real solutions being implemented and the resilience of those facing the harms of their changing environments, what do you think is the potential in that in terms of manifesting into larger real-life changes for our future? Oh, I think it's incalculable. I, I really am... I feel driven by this. You know, the there's the Solutions Journalism Network, which is a media campaign that started about a decade ago, gathering together media outlets from many parts of the world to try to more actively promote and promote by training, promote by creating funding for journalists, promote by sharing stories that are published. And what they're trying to do is say that Solutions journalism isn't about just telling good news. It's about taking a rigorous, evidence-based look at solutions in the same way that we take rigorous, evidence-based looks at problems. And so a journalist goes in and looks at what is working from the perspective of interventions around school shootings, for example, terrible situations. But what, what initiatives that people have put in place actually have more success, you know, in reducing the, the chance of those horrible experiences. And so I'm, I'm really, really keen on the Solutions Journalism Network. It's easy to go onto their site and track stories. I've been, I think I mentioned ocean optimism as a way of crowdsourcing solutions around the ocean. Um, that's an initiative I've been quite involved in because I think we need to crowdsource and share examples of successes so that people can see them. And I suppose the thing I'm, I'm driven by now is I would love to work with others who are interested in, in essentially creating that same shift that we're seeing emerging around solutions journalism for the environment. That's, that's what really keeps me awake at night is how to move that shift. And, and this book is just one part of that. I do lots of other work, but I know I need a collective to help me do that. So if anyone is listening and would be willing to help me, I would love to work with you on that. And if our listener were to walk away with one primary message and action step to implement into their own lives, what would you like to leave them with? Yeah, I think what I would really recommend is to recognize that most of the news that you hear about the environment is going to be problem identification. It's going to be about what's broken. And so when you see something and you're really worried about it, to actively search for for solutions to that problem. So even a Google search, which is just whatever the problem is and solutions, and just see what comes up. Because I think you'll be surprised at how many solutions are being enacted and are making a positive difference. And then my second point would be to share that because we know that emotions are contagious, both online and face-to-face. And so when we see solutions and we share them, we really are propagating the kind of hopefulness and, uh, you know, amplifying the solutions that we need to, to tackle the problems that we face. And if I could add one more thing, I would say to spend as much time as you possibly can outside because it's very restorative. And it also, we know that people who spend more time outside often have more capacity for mindfulness and that both that mindfulness and the time outside have been positively correlated with environmental engagement. If you take the road less traveled, you 
What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, it's actually hashtag ocean optimism. I follow it every day to see what solutions are happening around the ocean. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? That I am a time philanthropist. And and I think sometimes when we're working on things and we're not sure how much impact we're having or we know the problem is huge and we need to have as much impact as we can, I just think about all the time that I donate to things and it makes me feel powerful. Mm. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? There's been a big movement in the UN just in September to look at biodiversity conservation as and climate change as, as together, that these things need to be tackled together. And we had 71 countries um, and many others, like the state of California, agree to setting aside 25% of land and ocean as part of a commitment that they're making to biodiversity protection. And that really matters because in 2008, I worked on a marine protected area trying to get George Bush to declare the largest marine protected area on Earth. We were successful. And at that time, you know, the amount of protected ocean was something like 7%. So seeing these big ecosystem scale shifts in the last decade and seeing this as a movement forward is so hopeful to me. And it's all about creating space for the resiliency of other species to have the impacts that they have. So that's really hopeful to me. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Ellen's work, you can head to ellenkelsey.org, and you can also find her book Hope Matters at graystonebooks.com. You can also find Ellen on Twitter at Ellen Kelsey. Ellen, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for shining this light for us in the midst of a very often doom and gloom space, so we appreciate you so much. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep dreaming because you are you are in the um, period of time where big shifts are occurring. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at financial news reports, and what we're seeing is that investors are driving those who who care about climate are driving what financial institutions are doing around climate change. They're having a big impact. We just saw that thirty of the world's largest companies have agreed companies with $5 trillion worth of assets have set aside five-year decarbonization targets in line with the climate change accord. So what you care about and the actions that you take are being heard, and we just need to double down on that. So it's good to know what's happening and, and keep strong. Green Dreamer, we're coming full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song featured is Less Traveled by Johanna Warren. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>